calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. This is Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. I am joined each week by New York Times number one bestseller Scott Sigler and screenwriter Rob Otto. How are you guys? I'm good. Rob, how are you? Uh, I'm very excited for the coming of Gozer the Gozerian. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Rob is, uh, for those of you listening at home, Rob is rocking the look of Vince Glortho. <laughs> and- Te- technically Lewis, right? Is that Lewis? That's yeah, I think I'd have to mess my hair up a lot. Oh, more you're still, Lewis. Lewis. He's still at the he's moment. Still he's Lewis. Yes, looking <laughs> yeah. good, Lewis. Uh, and this week we are Feeling obviously good. <laughs> <laughs> wrong movie. <laughs> we are this week discussing the 1984 iconic movie Ghostbusters because Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming out real soon, mm-hmm. and you will see a lot of. We're we're so timely, you guys, so timely because this is the week that all the advertising has started because New York Comic Con is in in high gear. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see Ghostbusters Afterlife everywhere. So get caught up with us, and then you'll be ready to go. Um, do you want to give us the movie guy synopsis? I do. I do. After the members of a team of scientists lose their cushy positions at a university in New York City, they decide to become Ghostbusters to wage a high-tech battle with a supernatural enemy for money. They stumble upon a gateway to another dimension, a doorway that will release evil upon the city. The Ghostbusters must now save New York from complete destruction. There we go. Your Ghostbusters or your movie guy voice this week has a teeny bit of Casey Kasem in it. It's nice. I like it. I like it. I do. Well, you know why? No. Casey Kasem talks about the Ghostbusters and the Marigolette and the countdown continues. <laughs> and his wife dances with Lewis at his party. So it's really that's, that's right. True. It was on. Right. It was on point. Is what you're saying? It's very yeah. it's on very, point, very Scotty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. All right. So, uh, baby, tell us about the financial breakdown of this movie. One of my favorite parts of all of these shows is how much did it cost? How much did it make? Yeah. And this is so interesting because um, normally I'll start by saying, I think all of us, all three of us, even though if even if it's a movie we know and love and have seen at least a dozen times, we watch with intention to do this show. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch. I've seen Ghostbusters so many times that when I was pulling together the script, I was smiling and happy and looking up clips. And I was like, I. I'm not sure I need to watch it. I think I might know this movie pretty well. Regardless, I did not know these things. Ghostbusters cost $30 million to make in 1984. The equivalent of that today would be about $79 million. So really, for the, for the, long, the, the longevity of this movie, it, was, it is such a steal, you guys. Such a steal. Um, and it made, back then, $282.2 million at the box office, okay. making it one of the top two earning movies in 1984, along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on where you look on the internet, they flip-flop between first and second. That's how close they were. So two movies in 1984 made almost $300 million in 1984 dollars. It's huge because 1984 dollars, that would be $743 million Dang. in 2021. That's wow. Avengers money right there, Joe. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Rob, favorite moments of the movie. Robbie, what is your favorite moment? Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, you go first. Favorite moment oh, of the movie. I mean, no holds barred. Ray, when someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. Yes. That's true. Every time you're on the spot, it's one time it's, it's okay call. to lie. If you're saving the world, <laughs> you get to lie about being something that you're not. Yes. 100%. And, and earlier in the movie, we get to see Bill Murray test that because when, uh, you know, when Zool says, are you the key master? He says, yes. And she lets him in and he says, well, I'm a friend of his. I'm just meeting him here. So, you know, you always say yes. <laughs> always say yes. I've, 
I have to admit, and that's great. There's so many great lines in this one. So many. I didn't realize that it was Winston that said that line. Oh, really? I assumed it was one of the other main guys, but it's Winston that says that line, and it is such a great line. I'm so mm-hmm. happy you said that because that's why I put Ray in it. Because you hear that throughout pop culture all the time. But it's if when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. That's in the GFL. If somebody asks you if yeah. you're a godling, you say yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's why. I so I in put there. the Ray in to kind of frame it a little. So I love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, My favorite moment, guys, and, and honestly, I got to tell you, I'm probably going to sprinkle in favorite lines, favorite moments, Please. quick right. little improvs, little scenes, whatever. But the entire choose your form of the destroyer, right? That whole mm-hmm. scene where everybody's just like, empty your minds. And, and, and everybody says, no, we didn't choose nothing, right? Did you choose anything? <laughs> well, I didn't choose Ray, nothing. Ray just is slowly backing up while they're all saying, <laughs> I didn't choose anything. My mind was blank. And then they all kind of look at Ray and he's like, I, I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. And it's, it's, it's the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. And it's just like, and it's so amazing to think that they cut that scene, they put it in, but they were just like, I don't think this is going to work. Let's show this to test audiences. And if, if it doesn't work, if the Marshmallow Man doesn't work, we've got to change that whole thing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, it is like the greatest moment of the movie yeah. when you see Mr. Stay Puft with his little sailor hat on mm-hmm. walking oh, giantly shoot. through the streets of New York. I, I got to get my Stay Puft. Okay, go So hold on. Oh, it's, it's so up there. You got to go I will say, uh, I agree with you, because the other part of that is he is exactly the one of them. It's that character uh-huh. who would be trying to help and, and, like, think of innocent, nice things. He and would, he not quite understand us. the assignment, right? Like, cool, I'm not going to think of anything bad. I'm not going to think of anything bad instead of think of nothing at all. Uh-huh, <laughs> and right, and then exactly. he ends up, you know, having to deal with a killer. Oh, there's I, a whole stepladder coming out. The shortest man in the company. <laughs> I would like to point out a couple of things because after Gozer says, choose the form of the traveler, choose the destroyer. The first thing that Venkman does, he walks up and says, oh, I get it. If we choose J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover is going to show up. Why didn't J- giant J. Edgar Hoover show up? Because he, he just said it, right? I mean, Yeah, that's no, that's a good point. That, that's a good point. Have because done it, that. But honestly, in, either a guy made of giant marshmallow or glass would have been an excellent choice because you could blow something up that's made out of marshmallow or mm-hmm. glass. So that was... It actually turned it out, turned out very, very well. They, they right. cooked him. And uh, yeah, like I did not know that until you mentioned that, Rob, that they were they didn't think this would work because this has just mm. become such an iconic part mm-hmm. of Ghostbusters lore. I mean, I think with Ecto-1 as a lasting prop image that is so uh-huh. strong, it's been used again in, mm-hmm. in the other movies. And the State of Marshmallow Man, which featured heavily in the video games. It's just a, I mean, when you think of Ghostbusters... You think of the four main guys, Ecto One, and you think of the Stay Puft Marshmallow. So, and and you and you think of Slimer yep. because of course Slimer, sure, Slimer yeah. was so huge in the in the real Ghostbusters cartoon. And I will well. tell you guys, yes. both of you guys, that I um I had I, so in 1984 I was what 12, 12 years old, mm-hmm. and I had growing up I used to walk to school past a um, tire you know, new tire, like a discount tire at the time, but it was a Michelin store. And the Michelin man is vaguely a Stay Puft kind of yeah. a guy. And I used to walk to kindergarten and first grade, and I was terrified of the Michelin man <laughs> for no good reason. So when Ghostbusters came out, I was like, I mean, no, that's a little scary, right? I mean, it's a little scary. But I had satisfaction, spoiler alert, when he got I mean, if it, had been the, go. if it had been the Michelin man, that would have been very difficult because, you know, you can't you hit him with any yeah. physical objects. Well, they bounce exactly. right off. Exactly. Yeah. But but he looks similar. So I, I appreciated seeing the demise of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It helped soothe some of my childhood trauma. I got two favorite things. Um, the favorite thing of Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is that expression Stay Puft gets right before he blows up. That <laughs> And they did oh, such okay. a good job on that. But my favorite thing about the movie are the, the two demon dogs because the shape of the demon dogs were very influential in deciding the shape of the ancestor from the titular oh, novel Ancestor. Oh, really? Oh, That's yeah. very cool. Yes. I, I, I never made that connection forward. before. But you're, yeah, the, the yeah, big the, shoulders mm. forward, the tiny hips, and the 45-degree angle. Uh, when, it, when I was Whoa. working on a monster that would look cool, I kind of took that demon dog and a gorilla and a Demetri- <clears throat> Demetrodon, put all that together. And I wish I'd got some pictures for you guys, but I didn't think about it. But that's why I that that image of that giant forward top-heavy predator has always been big in my mind. I wrote a book about it. There you How go. How cool. So we're going to get into, there's obviously all of you guys watching probably have seen Ghostbusters more than once, have love of Ghostbusters. We're going to talk about some of the key players and how they got there. Uh, I'm going to start. We're going to talk about producer and director Ivan Reitman. 
Um, Ivan Reitman, uh, he is the one who secured the financing and he actually um, got it when he made a five word pitch, (laughs) which was ghost janitors in New York. Uh, Frank Price, then the studio head at Columbia Pictures, greenlit the film on that very basic premise. And here's a check. That- go. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ghost janitors in New York. Here you go. Although, right, uh, uh, although as uh, Rob let me know, and he's totally right, uh, the fact that Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis were already signed on to, to that do helped. it, that probably <laughs> helped quite a whole lot in 1984. Yeah, that probably Might was a Might have been deal. a little easier to write a $30 million check yeah. knowing those guys um, were involved. The financiers, there are some caveats, though. The financiers, when they greenlit, they gave Reitman um, one caveat about using their money, which was that this movie had to be released in June of 1984. And uh, that gave them exactly one year after greenlighting to finish the script, shoot and edit the entire movie. And if you guys are a little less familiar with filmmaking, you have to write the script before you can do location scouting. You have Mm -hmm. to start with the script. So that also I'm saying they had to finish the script, shoot it and edit it. But there's a million steps in between. Cast everybody else. Get location shots. Get the permits for all of that. Ten months is uh, one year is an enormously little amount. And do you of know time. why they had to do it? Why they wanted to release in 1984? I, I don't. To I looked, with Indiana Jones. Maybe? I looked for that, and that's the best I can come up with. Okay. Is that they sort of sort of sort all of that coming? The only then, thing I can think of is that Columbia probably didn't have a summer blockbuster on their slate, and they're just like, these guys are releasing this. Indiana Jones is coming out. We need to get our chunk of money. So mm-hmm. I got to find something that can p- compete with that. And it has to be done in less than a year. I got to tell you, even if it was not a, let's say it was a basic love story or drama, you know, a couple of locations and zero special effects, that would have been hard to do. Yeah, agree. Throw in all the effects mm-hmm. and all of the giant locations that they had to use. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it. I have no idea. And for it to be so good. And if you think about it, one of the reasons that this works is that these particular human beings, these four right here, especially, um, and and the rest of the Ghostbusters, of course, um, Mm -hmm. that actually really helped because this this movie is very ad libbed. And that's because they know each other as as actors and as humans really well. And I think that helped because I'm not sure if you just hired people off the street, so to speak. You could have gotten the same vibe. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say about Ivan Reitman is he couldn't find, he looked and looked and couldn't find the right voice actor to voice Dana slash Zool and was running out of time in post-production. So he just recorded it himself. And at the screening, most of the cast didn't realize that that was Ivan Reitman. That's awesome. Which is awesome because he was the direct, he was the producer and he was the director. So he was in their face all the time, giving them line readings. And he still didn't notice. I love that. Yes. Let's. Well, if you uh, if you ask directors, I'm sure a lot of them will say that none of the actors ever listen to me. So I'm not, <laughs> probably not a surprise. They Good didn't point. recognize Good his point. voice. And of course, uh, the mega mega superstar, oh, on, beloved American, yes. Bill Murray. Uh, Michael Keaton was originally cast as Venkman, but when Bill Murray told Aykroyd he was interested, they reworked the role and got rid of Keaton, kicked him in the ding ding, sent him packing, mm-hmm. reworked the role of Murray who director Ivor Reitman had worked with in Meatballs and Stripes, they wound up coming together. Almost none of the scenes were filmed as scripted. This should be no (laughs) surprise. He's going to try some things. Most had at least one ad lib. Most of Bill Murray's lines are ad libs. Rather than take a paycheck for Ghostbusters, Uh, Bill Murray... This this actually, as an American consumer, pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) Rather than take... How dare this socialist not take a paycheck? Didn't take a penny. Didn't take a penny. But instead of taking a paycheck, Bill Murray negotiated with Columbia Pictures to finance his personal pet project, a remake of the movie The Razor's Edge, about a World War I veteran who goes searching for the meaning of life after being scarred by war. Murray made no money off of Ghostbusters, but I'm sure he made a buttload off of Ghostbusters, too. Well, I have to say, though, uh, Murray wanting to make art, like, he is the weirdest, best most curmudgeonly version of a true artist in the movie community that I think I know, right? So he does all this weird bartering stuff. He's like, sure, I'll be a zombie in your movie if you want, whatever. Like, I love that about him, that he he wants to create something cool and wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm not socialist, I know, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, I was just joking about I the know, socialism I know, thing. I but know. Have you ever seen Razor's Edge? Um, I have. 
I don't think we could forgive him for that. <laughs> that was one of the things Sigler used to rail on when we were kids. How dare Bill Murray try to make a serious movie? That's <laughs> unforgivable. <laughs> unforgivable. They originally used a real 1-800 number in the Ghostbusters commercial and ran on TV as a publicity stunt. If you called it, you heard a recording done by Aykroyd and Murray. The phone line became very popular and actually received more than 1,000 calls an hour for six weeks during the movie's run in theaters. That must have been, uh, that must have been a hoot. Oh, my goodness. Uh, scroll back to one photo if you can. Can you do that? I love this. This is one of his uh, period, in the right period, um, uh, shots, headshots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is that guy? Yes. What is that? It's a, it's a black and white mullet shot for those well, of you listening hello. to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a little bit over uh, the right shoulder, like, yeah, oh, I didn't see you come in. I feel in. like this is the very young version of his character in Lost in Translation. Yes. Who thinks he's so mm-hmm. self-important. Now, Rob, we have a, a guy who's seen incredible highs and lows in his career. Next, writer and star Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, this movie doesn't exist without Dan Aykroyd. And honestly, it doesn't exist without Dan Aykroyd's family either. So okay. he uh, based a lot of this. So let's see. His great-grandfather, Samuel Aykroyd, was actually a noted 19th century psychic investigator who conducted seances at the Aykroyd family farmhouse in Ontario. Mm-hmm. His grandfather, Maurice, allegedly tried to create a high-vibration crystal radio that could contact the spirit world. And Dan's father, Peter, had a sizable library of books about spooky subjects. So this was just part of Dan Aykroyd's world, and he tried to turn it into a movie. Now, here's the interesting thing. The original script that Reitman saw and somehow saw a gem in it Mm -hmm. was over 500 pages. What? What? It It was about, it was set in the future where there are all series of Ghostbusters being attacked by giant monsters. And the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was just one of the giant monsters. It was like a giant future ghost kaiju movie. Okay. Is what Dan, is what Dan Aykroyd wrote. And somehow Ivan Reitman saw a great <laughs> successful movie somewhere in the middle of that. So Reitman yeah. gets uh, Harold Ramis involved. And Ramis had gone on to directing and writing. He hadn't acted in years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and Aykroyd reworked the script. And when it comes time to casting, we'll get into Harold Ramis in a minute. But um, the idea when Aykroyd was reworking the script was that uh, it was going to be him and it was going to be John Belushi. Mm. And then, of course, John Belushi tragically died and it just turned into there. And Aykroyd always jokingly said that um, John Belushi was still in this movie. Yeah, he was the big gluttonous green goo that attacks everybody and eats all the hot dogs and he's constantly picking stuff off the food plate. He says, that is the ghost of John Belushi. So he is oh, still in this movie. It works, I that works. That, uh, so that works much. pretty well. It wouldn't work in, in a movie titled anything but Ghostbusters. Nope. <laughs> it would have to be about ghosts, but I love that. Oh, so and, yeah. and the original title was Ghost Smashers, by the way, oh. just, just so you know. Still okay. Still, I'd be all right with that. And then, of course, we have Sigourney Weaver. Now, she decided to do a wordless audition for director Ivan Reitman by doing the transformation into a terror dog. She even growled and gnawed on the couch cushions. Uh, that's that's uh, that's pretty entertaining, I guess. Sigourney Weaver. I mean, it it, it says a whole lot about what she's willing to do to to transform into a demon. Like, I think that's one of the things that you want to make sure you can tell by looking. She's mm-hmm. pretty. You can look at her filmography and know she can act. You don't know whether or not she'll bark like but, a dog, yeah. and, <laughs> so yeah, to right. speak. Can she, can she do comedy? It's something she used to do comedy all the time when she was in like college and school okay. and, uh, as stage stuff. A lot of comedy, but she, of course, was known for Alien and Aliens and that kind of stuff at the time. She wanted to do something more like doesn't now, this doesn't this I'm predate sure. Aliens though? Uh, this see. is two well, years before. This is eighty four. And into 84. Aliens is 86, I think. Yeah, Aliens is 86, so you're right. Okay. But, I mean, Alien was Alien. Was oh, right. correct. Of course. That, uh, 78. That Alien yeah. 78. Yeah. Um, right. My bad. But I got to tell you, I'm not sure I would have cast her in my movie, you know, for acting like a dog and chewing on the couch cushions. I definitely would have asked her out, though. <laughs> <laughs> and for the famous scene where she is floating, that is a physical effect. Actress was put into a full body cast and attached to a post hidden in the curtains. So she's perfectly willing to suffer for her art as well. And I will tell you guys, I grew up in high school and uh, younger in high school and a little bit of college. I was really into uh, practical magic. And um, that is a really, really uncomfortable thing because essentially it's just like hanging a whole bunch of bananas on a banana hook in your kitchen. You've seen that happen. There is no support for like, ooh, you don't you don't have a lot of padding right here and you don't mm-hmm. have any padding on your it. 
that must have been a painful thing. And she was like, all right, whatever, she's let's a do it. Yeah, she's, she's a trooper. A trooper. And a, she, imagine, she was probably up there for hours. That's oh, what yeah. I'm saying, I mean, yeah. take after take after yeah. take. Doing that for 10 oh. minutes, no big deal. Doing that for three days, a big deal. And yeah. she did it. And there's no no stories of her. There, you know, back in the day, there's not a lot of stories of, of diva behavior on set at all. But you don't get any of her from her, really. Well, or anybody in the 80s. Like, that happens as as we sort of elevate celebrities to be a, a different mm-hmm. thing. But we don't we don't have a ton of that in the 80s. We only and have Jack Kerouac. Paparazzi and yeah, 24 exactly. hour news channels exactly. and yeah. a little bit different. A little bit and, different. And people willing to talk. And back then there might have been stories, but nobody was willing Kept to talk quiet. about it. Yeah. Hey, tell us about Harold Ramis. Oh, the late great Harold Ramis. Oh, oh my goodness. Harold Ramis, uh, if you don't know, sorry about this, spoiler alert. Harold Ramis died in 1984 of uh, autoimmune inflammatory vasculitis. It's a great loss to the film not, community. Not in 84. Uh, I'm so sorry, in uh, 2014. 2014. Um Harold Ramis uh, made a choice to never smile as Egon, which I sort of love. That's why I picked this photo you see right now, because this is the closest I could find. I literally looked for pictures of him in costume, in character. This is the closest to a smile I could find, which is absolutely not a smile. Um, in For this role um, Harold that Harold Ramis eventually got, Christopher Walken, John Lithgow, Chris, uh, Christopher Lloyd, and Jeff Goldblum were all considered for the role wow, of cool. Egon Spengler, or Dr. Egon Spengler, uh, having gotten so close to the character during the writing or the rewriting of the script with Dan Aykroyd, Ramis felt compelled to play, play the part, thus re-resurrecting his dormant acting career. On a remote island in frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then, yeah. Go ahead. And then we... We have one more picture of him. Oh, yeah. I had a bunch of pictures of him. Holy cow. did, yeah. He's a, yeah, and there he's smiling. That's, it, yeah. that's his last year before, he, before he passed on. But yeah, just, just the best. What an incredible body of work. What a great legacy of fun and joy to leave <laughs> behind as your tombstone. It's and quite that nice. hair, too. Yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, I, I believe he that hair. Uh, he and John Hughes are sort of spiritual brothers in this regard. Like, they left a lot of goodness. Mm-hmm. And then they left us too soon. <laughs> and now we get into what a lot of people don't know. One of the biggest box office titans in the history of mankind, Harold Ramis. Or, sorry, it's Rick Moranis. Sorry, Rick, Rick Moranis. Yeah, <laughs> See, you just <laughs> wanted to pay honor. Yeah. There you go. Here so we Rick, go Rick Moranis. Go Rob, tell us about Rick Moranis. Uh, Rick Moranis um, is, he originally was not going to be cast in this movie. I know it's one of our notes later, but I'm going to ruin it now. Okay. Okay. Um, they were originally looking at his SCTV partner to come in and take the role instead. John Candy was originally oh, thought of to play Lewis Tully, um, but he wanted him to be uh, German and have a really strong personality and a thick accent. And oh, thank goodness that they did <laughs> not go in that direction because Lewis Tully is the geeky little nerdy guy down the hall is absolutely fantastic. And Rick Moranis is just so good. I mean, we talked about the SNL connections and how there was so much ad libbing. Uh-huh. Same thing for SCTV, right? I mean, Moranis was on SCTV, the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live for years. Yeah, and he was years great. And so it's probably just there was this thing where we're rewriting the script. Why don't you guys just go out there and do something? And let's run, you know, let's let's run the cameras on the, you know, on the uh, appreciation of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Rick Moranis, that scene that's all done in one take when he's introducing <clears throat> the new people that arrive at his party. They're his he's a CPA and they're all his clients. Mm-hmm. He improvised that entire scene, wow. you know, talking about how they're living off the dividends of an IRA. And he runs his own uh, carpet cleaning business. And then over here, I mean. It's one shot. It's like two and a half minutes long. Moranis <laughs> never stops talking. He never breaks character. He comes up with, I mean, was he a CPA himself? How does he know all these money <laughs> oh. things and can talk about them so openly? It's absolutely fantastic. But he's, he's doing improv his entire career leading well, up to that. True. You know, with Second City Television, yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. So a lot of the whole backstory of Lewis Tully came directly from Rick Moranis. It's and awesome. He gets... His role gets bigger in the, the second one. Um, you know, he's he becomes mm-hmm. their accountant, which is, again, all, one of these moments, like, he's just survived this near-death experience. They just took a giant dog head off of him, 
And he says, who are you guys? We're the Ghostbusters. His first thought is, who does your taxes? I mean, there's, there's no way that was in the script. That is all Rick Moranis right there. 100% in character. So it's just really cool. And, of course, he's he is Bob yes. uh, of Bob and Doug McKenzie yeah. with his SCTV partner. And the, the training Thomas. they get, I got to go see Second City Television, uh, or SC, the Second City Troop once uh, mm-hmm. in Chicago. And they that is how they do it they line them up they throw a, throw a couple of pitch things to them and then you watch these brilliant people create live on the fly so he's they're all very used to this yeah well for sure and i do think you know it's an interesting recursive thing to think about rick moranis ad-libbing things that would get rick moranis hired for if there were sequels mm, hired yeah. for the sequels is very much a lewis tully thing to do <laughs> and yeah, yeah that's exactly what rick moranis did now, one well, of he the- did write off that entire party that's why he did <laughs> didn't invite friends. He only invited clients. I <laughs> did. There is a perpetual rumor that's gone around for decades and that the reason they could not do a Ghostbusters 3 was because they couldn't pay Rick Moranis enough. That was when he was coming off of he had semi-retired and he had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids money from that whole yeah. franchise. He didn't need money at all and they just couldn't. And then and the rest of the guys, the rest of the guys were like, look, if he's not going to do it, we don't want to do yeah, it. Yeah, and I don't know how much, if that's true or not. I do know, I, there's a thing you may or may not know about Rick Moranis, especially if you didn't, you weren't a kid or you weren't raising kids back in his heyday in the 80s. Um, his wife died in 1991 of cancer and his children were quite young and he made the decision that his children were more important than his movie career because he only had, they only had one parent and one shot at growing up. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was retired, and it wasn't until all of his children had gotten off and launched on their own into their own lives. Now he's like, sure, I'll be in movies I'll again. But so I wonder, you know, the 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 classic Hollywood version of that is like he's too it's he's too expensive. But I wonder if it just wasn't worth it because probably, his kids probably. came first. It's all right. sort of a nice. And thing. then we move on to a couple more couple of characters. We've got uh, Miss Annie Potts. <laughs> I love this. So Annie Potts um, is uh, she auditioned for the role of Janine uh, Minitz. Melnitz? Melnitz. Uh, and, Melnitz. And then uh, when she was auditioning, she had a nanny and she she borrowed her nanny's or asked her nanny to dress her, her Brazilian nanny to dress her because <laughs> that woman had a style that was unique and, and she thought would work for the character. And obviously it probably did. Yeah. Um, and then before the filming started, but after she was hired, uh, she. Annie visited the set. Annie Potts visited the set to watch them film at Firehouse 23 in Los Angeles. And Ivan Reitman noticed her in the crowd and put her in the scene. And because she wasn't necessarily in character, she grabbed the prescription glasses that one of the um, costume designers had, which is why she wears, why Janine wears those glasses in the movie, which I kind of love. So she was just there kind of scoping it out because she's already in the movie, but she was there watching and he threw her in the scene. Yeah. Fascinating. It's weird how this stuff yeah. happens. Again, going to the the ad libbing, the loose, yeah, the improving yeah. idea of this movie. There's mm-hmm. like, well, Annie's here. Annie, you want to jump in the scene and yeah. bounce a couple lines off the guys? And that's I mean, really that's awesome. It's really a testament to the director to be able to recognize the talent around him and say, okay, let's you two go in the scene and just go play for a little bit and let's see what happens. It's it's now, quite impressive. Now that being said, as a guy who's now writing more screenplays. <laughs> I cannot tell you as a writer how much that would piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spending months crafting exactly the right word for the right sentence in the right spot. 100%. And these sons of bitches are yep. ignoring it? Or they, they write something better on the drop of a hat. And you're like, you son oh, of a bitch. Well, how dare you upstage me? <laughs> and you, you guys who are writing screenplays, you both have to worry enormously and very granularly about where the acts break, how many pages the whole screenplay is, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. Once it's greenlit and you're in production, yeah, you have a Bill Murray on your set, I'm sure those money guys are going to be like, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. It yeah. can just, be 20 just minutes let, longer. Just just let, yeah, just yeah. let Egon <laughs> and, and Pete play. Just yeah. go. And then we have Ernie Hudson. Yeah. yeah, Ernie was great. Ernie Hudson first bottle heard about Ghostbusters when he happened to bump into Ivan Reitman in an elevator at Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. <laughs> At the time, Reitman assured him there wasn't a role for him, but later auditioned for the Winston character. Much like Winston, Ernest L. Hudson Sr., a U.S. Marine veteran, he has also appeared in Airheads, Congo. He's great. In Con- he's great. He stole the show in Congo. He the did, Crow, for sure. Miss Congeniality, Ernie Hudson, awesome, awesome dude. And I will, there, there's a thing that I didn't put in the script, but I saw quite a few times um, at the premiere of the movie, security didn't think that Annie Potts 
or Ernie Hudson were part of the cast. So they were on the red carpet being photographed and got removed by security because they thought that they were crashing. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing in this world in 2021 to think, oh, the the black man and the woman got removed, you know? Mm -hmm. But I honestly think at the time, like the other stars were just such bigger stars, including Rick Moran, yeah, like everybody that mm-hmm. I, you know, and, but that's a sort of a fun, some weird thing that I don't think yeah. would happen today for either one of those actors. Well, it's <laughs> not like, you know, some publicists can look them up on IMDb. <laughs> exactly. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. That wouldn't happen yeah. in 84. Uh, still quite a bit of a fail, but don't we move on. The last character we'll discuss, Mr. William Atherton. Oh, oh there's Amy <laughs> Hudson's. Oh, okay. There. William Atherton, go ahead, Rob. We have to. <laughs> this is great. And, and honestly, it's funny. You think, well, you know, you know, Gozer and Zool, they're the bad guys. No, 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 no. Dickless is the bad guy in this movie. And, and William Atherton just plays it so great. great. He plays the smarmy, know-it-all, probably as good as anybody else can. You know, he's the, he's the official from the EPA who eventually shuts down the power grid because he thinks that there's noxious chemicals and that this whole thing they're staging it all. None of this is real. And the mm-hmm. cool thing is, this is great. People held this role against William Atherton for years. Walter Peck, right? The Pecker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, anytime he was in public after this movie came out, people would verbally abuse him. They would <laughs> shout things at him. They would try to start fights with him, right? I mean, bus tours would go through New York, and he was walking down the street They'd all yell to him, hey, Dickless. I mean, they were just. just, What do you do, like Ivan Reitman uh, later? uh, Yeah, what do you do as an actor? Yeah. And and just, you know, Ivan was just like, hey, William, isn't this fantastic how well the movie's doing? William walked up and said, screw you, Ivan Reitman. This is your. It reminds- and uh, David Room in the chat room, he played a similar character in Die Hard. He did, yeah, he did. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I wonder though. There, there's, um, there's in the internet era. There's uh, the story of the guy who was on the bus stop and train stop posters getting arrested for hopping or not paying his fare. He's got this big, long, curly hair like um, Princess Buttercup in The Princess Bride, and he has to carry a le- like a letter saying like he is an actor in that photo. Because he keeps getting harassed because he's a he's because he's in cuffs as a drug. Oh, it's a drug dealer, I think. <laughs> on the on a, and there literally were like ten thousand posters, so people oh notice him. And this was back in the day. I don't know if it still That's happens. That's funny. But yeah. So William Atherton had a similar thing, but that sort of happens, and it sort of tells a lot about how your mind works. Because you take the bus every day, you start to see that guy suspicious, and then you see him, you know, at your church, and you're like, oh, and you, you no. call the cops on that guy. No, right? you're a drug dealer. Um, Atherton, the year after this came out, was the main meanie professor and real genius, the Val Kilmer. Oh, mm-hmm. that's yeah. the other one. Essentially, okay. same character. Yep. Same yep. look. Same dickless. Yep. Dude, dude has made a whole career out of being extraordinarily good at that particular thing. So good. So good. You know Perfect. what? Um, people want to, they look at me and they want to punch me. What can I do with this <laughs> if I don't want to be a fighter? I'll be an asshole actor. It'll For be sure. great. Exactly For right. sure. Yep. All right. That is closing out of our character list. And uh, now we go on to general, general thoughts about the oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And I just, just this second, I realized there were other characters that we don't have photos for that we should have. We okay. should have had Slimer. We should have had the Actimobile. <laughs> we should, or the, you know, we should have had the fire. And that's my fault. My job is photos. And I didn't do that until just this second. We should have had the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. That's all right. That's uh, all right. We'll talk a little bit about that. But, I, but um, think about it, right? Gozer the Gozerian, who's the, you know, the woman with the punk haircut and, yep. the, and the body, you know, oh, she's a, you know, what is it? Uh, she's a, she's a nimble little minx. Isn't she? Right? Right? We don't even talk about her when no. we talk about this movie. Nobody thinks about her. She's the main baddie officially. Yeah. And yet you never talk about her. She's the afterthought. She's, she's the and, deus and ex that, machina. And part that of that is the thing she, she looked great. She played that role great. She looks like she walked out of a Debbie Harry metal video. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, for I, sure. And, and that eye candy alone. <laughs> So well shot, so well lit. Right, Rob. We don't even think about that because the other stuff just blew up. Well, the other yeah. thing is, um, I think today, anybody who saw this in the theater at, at, as a teenager or a child anyway, um, in 1984, today probably thinks of Slimer as a good thing. Slimer is, an, good is a ghostly presence on Earth in New York City sent to do harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. That's all. And we're like, oh. They need all the hot dogs. Well, yeah. that, that part of that is because, uh, you know, this was when, when Rob and I were of, of collegiate age. 
the Ghostbusters cartoon was very successful, mm-hmm. and they made they made Slimer like the cute kid slash animal mascot. Mm-hmm. So there was yeah. a there was a there were many years where Slimer was presented as like this is a this is the fifth Ghostbuster in effect. Yeah, and I used to love that cartoon. We used to literally skip practice to go watch that. That's cartoon. actually why I mentioned when we were children because it's yeah. and and the, the one of the nice things I was going to bring up, but I'll bring it up now. It's perfect timing. Is one of the great things about this franchise, which is rare today. Um, is so many of the actors who were in that first movie continue into other Ghostbusters movies, but also continue into other AV. They do comic books, they do uh, video games, they do cartoons, and it's it's a huge amount of, and if you think about it, Bill Murray doesn't need to do any of this, but even Ernie Hudson might, Annie Pites. Pots might that might really shore up their like kids college funds and stuff. And that doesn't happen so much anymore. You sort of take that franchise and then you pick one star like we'll get Chris Pratt to do his part in Jurassic Park, the video or the cartoon. But then you fill out everybody else with voice actors. And so I kind of love that because this, you know, I know Bill Murray doesn't need the money, but like him having given up all the money for Ghostbusters, uh, this is still a huge cornerstone of his career because he gets to do all these other things, which I think is pretty nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, I, I just, some of the things that Rob and A came up with as details in this is the, they originally weren't proton packs. It was supposed to be some kind of fancy wand. And the props department came up with the proton packs. But of course, watching these guys lug around these packs that almost tipped them over is an additional <laughs> comedy element. And when, mm-hmm. when they have to go up the stairs carrying the packs and you get that quirky music playing, like that's another one. And it's, so it wasn't just the director and the cast that were very talented, the props department and the mechanical, department, all the people around them came, kept coming up with these great ideas yeah, for sure. that provide all of these little brushstrokes. And to me, the brushstrokes in a screenplay like this, they are sort of this, this invisible <laughs> foundation of it. The more cool little things you have that mm-hmm. you don't actually, you see and your subconscious recognizes them, but you won't go, oh, my God, how cool they have proton packs that are too big for them to wear. It's more of a subtle thing. The actors carry with their with their their body weight yeah. and their and their body English. All of those things go into creating what I what I call that gradient of believability. Sure, for sure. So what I try and do with my work is uh, I'm going to give you 10 to 20 things that you already know that you think other people don't know, usually in the realm of science. Let's talk about cell division. We'll talk about, you know, g- g- gravity. We'll talk about speed. Th- little little things that you either know or you've heard of before so that you start to create that trust, that level that, oh, my God, this guy knows what he's talking about. So then when I move into the utter bullshit, mm-hmm. people have already <clears throat> already decided in their heart that they're going to believe what I tell them. And that's what all these props were. Everything looking so good all the time, all the little things uh, that the uh, supporting cat crew came up with. So you'll love but also- this. Oh, go ahead, A. Uh, I'm sorry. You guys will, you'll especially love this then. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I is coming out shortly. I don't think it's uh, It's coming out. out in November. It's yeah. coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. uh, is directed by Jason Reitman, who is Ivan Reitman's son. And, of course, you instantly might think nepotism, but Jason Reitman went back to the building blocks for a lot of things and, and built his Ghostbuster proton packs based on the original uh, blueprints for the first one. So they are heavy mm-hmm. and hard to wear. Mm-hmm. Which they could now they could 3D print them and make it easy. But he was like, no, part of the reality of these being like they're not professional Ghostbusters. They were professors. They were something right. different. So they're awkward. And one of the ways to make them awkward here is to do the same thing. I got to so break. Neat that you you. That's yeah, one of the things you appreciate. I got to break from the script for a minute. Let's talk about <clears throat> Ghostbusters Afterlife. Let's do a quick roundtable. Based on the okay. trailer I have seen, which basically looks like they're trying to make a movie out of Stranger Things. Rob. Ghostbusters Afterlife, your predictions. Is this going to be good? Is this going to be a stinker? Are they going to, is it going to honor the original or is it just a whole different thing now? I've got to admit, I was less optimistic about it before I saw the trailer. So Mm -hmm. the the trailer helped. You're right. It is basically Stranger Things, the movie. It's it's, uh, Super 8 married to Stranger Things on a farm in the middle. It's got... The whole point is the cast worked so well. We, all we've talked about so far today is how great the cast and Ivan Reitman and the script and how everything worked together. I don't know if they can create that, but if you're going to try to recreate something like that, Paul Rudd's a pretty damn good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I've got a feeling the movie's going to focus more on the kids and Paul Rudd's going to be kind of a secondary character. So I'm, I'm not convinced how well it's going to do. Um, I don't know how much our generation is going to be interested in this um, the way we were in the first and second Ghostbusters and the real Ghostbusters cartoon. So I, um, I, I think it'll do okay. 
But if this costs them a couple hundred million dollars to make, I don't know that it's going to make a lot of money. It's hard to make that money back in the theaters these days. Yeah, Yeah. it is. So uh, I have to I have to say a caveat and say that I have another job where I I have a little more insight than this because I do logistics for somebody who is involved in the prop making for this. So um, I actually think that Jason Reitman didn't just sit on his laurels and take this, but tried to make it relevant to the main movie-going audience now, I agree with you, Robbie. I'm not sure how many of the people who love Ghostbusters in 1984 will buy right in, but I also think he did a lot of work to make it an uh, to make it a legacy to that original Ghostbusters. And so I think that in this world where it's probably going to be half streaming, half theaters, mm-hmm. I think it's going to do really well. And from okay. what I, I see from people who I Movie-going people who I know, uh, personally know, who have seen screeners and whatever, they really like it. They are absolutely biased because they are watching screeners. If I could watch a screener, I'd be biased too, you know? (laughs) So, but I think it probably will do well built for this generation. Built for this world right now. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking specifically about our generation mm-hmm. and the people who loved the first Ghostbusters in the theaters, I'm not. I agree with Robbie. I'm not sure how well, how far the thing, of a reach the thing that struck me upon watching the trailer for the first time is, I'm like, this is not a comedy. When I watch the trailer, I'm like, this is a serious coming of age story that involves, you know, the the ghosts of our fathers. Uh, no pun intended. But, you know, coming off this legacy, it is a it is a dramatic, melodramatic, moody trailer that matches the Stranger Things concept very well. But to me, it didn't speak anything of Ghostbusters other than just the car under the tarp. It didn't see anything funny or lighthearted in the trailer. Yeah. And that's what really shocked me. I'm like, how can you... Ma- is it going to be as serious as this trailer? Or is it mm. just a bad trailer cut? Right. And, you know, we don't really do multiple trailers anymore. For a while there, there were different types of trailers and different yep. types of movie posters. But now, pandemic world, whatever, we don't do that. But I'll say this. My guess, I'm optimistic. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a good addition to the Ghostbusters realm. But I think what they're doing is saying, like, cool, you guys right now who, who are building your, your movie-going persona because you're in that range— this works for you because you love Stranger t- Things and you're probably watching Squid Game and you're doing all those things. Mm-hmm. That trailer talks to them. What's going to okay. talk to us okay. is all the reviews and feedback and everything so and you, Rotten Tomatoes when it comes so out. So if I'm hearing this right, you think they, they may have cut a trailer because Stranger Things is such a juggernaut mm-hmm. and has done so well. If you can grab a piece of that audience, because of course we're going to go. There's no, I mean, obviously well, our we generation might not is going to go. We may just watch it on video. But or or stream it at least. Yeah. yeah, but we're watching it for sure. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying, right? Right now, what's selling right now is, um, what is it, Bird Box, A Quiet Place, um, Squid Game. God, have there been any recent Stranger horror things? comedies that I'm, that I'm well, drawing a blank on? Shaun of ver- the Dead was the last yeah, one. Yeah, not very many. So right now, what sells, what gets butts in seats is this dark coming of age sort of yeah. thing. And so I think if you are going to make a trailer to appeal to the most people and you can't have a big box office mainstream opening like you used to because there's a pandemic, you make it look more like Bird Box, a quiet place, a quiet you. place, too. And, and so what I think is that's how you get butts and seats. That's how you make a good first weekend return. And then the reviews come out and, you know, the um, box office, I mean, um, uh, the Rotten Tomatoes and whatever, I hope mm-hmm. and I really, really think and I desperately hope that those are going to th- be the things that get all the rest of us okay. to be like, OK, that didn't look like me, but it's Ghostbusters. I'm going. And uh, of course, this is something I'm focused on right now because uh, Rob and I, our screenplay, Mall Pigs, <laughs> that we are pitching right now awesome. is a horror comedy and is very mm-hmm. much, very much in the vein of and influenced by the original Ghostbusters Ghostbusters 2, we drop references of those in there. It's very Shaun of the Dead oriented. Like, we're like, this is a squicked out comedy. So I just, uh, we'll see. I From what I've seen so far, it looks like they've they've reinvented the property. This is, this is to Ghostbusters what Cruella is to the original 101 Dalmatians. It's a completely different iteration yeah. of an existing IP. And, and it may be. I don't actually know how, you know, I haven't seen any of it. Um, but I will also say, like, the girl Ghostbusters version that was a few years ago, that mm-hmm. was a comedy and did mm-hmm. work. It didn't necessarily work for the people who loved the original Ghost. It did work for me, but not necessarily all because it wasn't That's an homage. Point. It that- wasn't It wasn't recreating the vibe. It was recreating the roots with a different cast of characters. That is such a good point. You wonder <laughs> if it does turn out to be a little bit more serious and have a little more gravitas to it. 
Could that be because Girl Ghostbusters, as you called it, came out, had a lot of problems in the marketplace, but it was a straight-up comedy with very talented comedians in it, but it didn't do what they thought it would do. So now they're like, okay, Mm -hmm. that shows this old property as a straight-up comedy isn't working. Let's do something different with it. Could yeah, that be it's, it? Yeah, and it's a complex thing to have this. If, As you know, with your GFL series, it's mm-hmm. very difficult to cross-genre as your main property, right? So Ghostbusters was a hugely successful comedy, which became its own gestalt. And right. then to redo that, to make it a girl version with a, with, a, with a Chris Hemsworth instead of an Annie Potts, that absolutely worked for me. But I also understand why it wouldn't work for some people who love, uh, like, ha- have a legendary status associated to that Ghostbusters that they first watched. It's not yeah, the I same thing. Yeah, I think if they could have connected it more to the original, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it all but ignores the original. And that's something that Ghostbusters Afterlife is not Doing. That was right. the weirdest. Have a direct connection. That was the weirdest thing. Like you've got, especially the ages of Bill Murray and the other surviving cast members, sure. incorporating sure. them into short one or two minute scenes to tie it together as a sequel. Uh, there was so much room to create there. And Just that would like you these are the so daughters of the Ghostbusters, yeah. and they have to start the mm-hmm. business up again to save because their dad screwed up and they're all in debt. So it would have yeah, been they, so they easy. They acted as uh, if the business never existed. And I will add two just little, coming up with it. So I'll like add two little choice. notes here okay. that you may not be thinking of. I do think that had, had that had the, I keep calling it girl ghost, ghostbusters, which is bad, but that version mm-hmm. had we done that where we said, Oh, they're the children of the ghost. They're the daughters. Huge. Or it would have been, oh, nepotism. They got this job because their dads did it right and no, no, they're no, doing not, it terrible. Not the characters, though. They're not the actors and actresses aren't the children of the original. No, no. no. I'm crest. saying that legacy for the characters would also exist. Like this idea that they didn't earn this, even though the original Ghostbuster didn't flip and earn it. They but got fired and had to do it. You know, there, there's there's writing premises you can do to alleviate. That. I totally Easy. agree. Or, I'm just saying or, the li- take. or lean into that. Hundred percent. Good call, Rob. Hundred percent. All I'm saying is, if you wanted to hate girl Ghostbusters, you could hate girl Ghostbusters for ten thousand reasons. Mm -hmm. If you want to hate Afterlife, you can hate it for ten thousand reasons. If you are willing to watch it and see if you like it on its merits, as opposed to how well does this recreate the feeling I had when I was fourteen and I watched Ghostbusters. You may actually enjoy it. And that, you can't cater to that. You have to yeah, make the movie point. you have. You can't just say, like, I want the most people to like uh, it. Chris McGuire in the chat room brings up a very good point. In the <laughs> uh, the Batman, the, the change in tone of Batman, the Dark Knight tone, and going on, you know, from the Joel Schumacher films to the, to the juggernauts that they became later, that was a very successful thing. And they did completely reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Not good a point. lot of homage original stuff, but they said this source material no longer works in this world so we're going to update it and change it and make it something else and it was hugely successful and there are people who are inveterate batman fans when they were 14 and mm-hmm. they're still fans today who fucking hate the the dark knight they hate it because it isn't batman and i'm to sure them batman, to yeah. them it's not batman right. and i am sure 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 that there are people in my parents generation who hate michael well a lot of people hate Michael Keaton's Batman. But my point is there are people who are in the next generation up who hate that it's not an Adam West, kitschy, oh stuff-on-the-screen kind of yep. Batman. Yep. So Let's jump back into notes about the original Ghostbusters. Here's one I love because being a fan of the Millennium Falcon sound, how they got the sound, the yeah. Ecto-1 siren sound is a leopard snarl that was edited, pitched, and otherwise processed in analog. That is so awesome. Rob, what's some of your other favorite notes from the movie? Well, since we're talking about Ecto-1, it's really interesting because, again, because they had such a small amount of time. Mm-hmm. Normally, when you make prop cars, I mean, when they did Back to the Future, there were like four different versions of the car, right? Okay. And they all served different purposes. They built one Ecto-1, <laughs> and that was it. And it's all that they had. And the interesting thing was, even after the success of this movie— when they shot the sequel, they still didn't build another one. They just kept using it. <laughs> and the funny thing is, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Ecto-1 is going across the Manhattan Bridge. The car died on the Manhattan Bridge while they were filming that scene. But it was like, they were like, well, that's the last shot of the car we need. I guess we're done. So they were just like, <laughs> they only built one car, used it for two full movies. And, you know, what was it? An old 59 Cadillac Miller Meteor uh, Ambulance. ambulance. Is what it was. Okay, so and, it's an ambulance hearse. That's just such, yeah. It just and that was one of the one of the even though they only had one one of the brand. Let's take a hearse and paint it white and colorful. Yeah. 
And like that is that that kind of switch 180 degrees thinking that goes into making these things because I, I'm not sure if I'd ever seen a white hearse before that. Like that is a thing. Oh, you're really? used to. It's black. You've seen white. A's, A's dad is in the, was in the funeral home business. My dad was a mortician and I've seen literally 400. White hearses? <laughs> white hearses, blue hearses, wow. black hearses. Well, I'm from Sheboygan and all of my knowledge of the world comes from movies. Because there was nothing that happened in our town. <laughs> and I assure you, there were only black hearses before Ghostbusters because I've watched every movie that's ever made. That's well, and fact. it's interesting to think, you know, when they, uh, you know, they pull out that slider in the back and put their proton packs on it. Yep. Um, you know what that slider is for in the is back of a hearse? Hey, would, you like to, uh, <laughs> would you like to fill the folks no, in? No. And what normally goes on top of that rolly slider yeah. in the back yeah. of a Hirsch. That's that's this, that's pretty this dope. This just took a really odd turn. Because you know the one thing <laughs> Ghostbusters doesn't ever talk about is the humans that created those ghosts. Which I, me personally, as a person who doesn't yeah, believe that ghosts walk the world, point. like I don't think ghosts are a real thing. Personally, um, mm-hmm. ha- probably having grown up as a mortician's kid, um, I they, we never never we the Ghostbusters never associates the ghosts. With death. I wonder if Ever that is death. something we'll see in the new one. If that, because we're such, you know, the overall, and not using woke as a positive or a negative, but s- sort of our culture is more broadly aware yeah. of the different people involved in all the things going Woo-hoo. on. So you wonder if, if part of this movie will be, let's get into why is this person a ghost? Yeah, exactly. Well, or that these people, that these ghosts were once people. The only people we, that the only time we talk about death in Ghostbusters is the fear of losing our main characters to, to death. That's it. Yeah. Uh, which is which is unique and strange because normally when you talk about ghosts, like if you think about the others, uh, the movie with Nicole Kidman, we don't talk a lot about death there, but it's very important to the yeah. plot. Kind of thing. It's also interesting the idea of not explaining everything and writing it down because there's just so many audiences today that question every little thing. Remember the the internet and you know moviepoopshoot.com didn't exist in 1984 to rip apart every little bit of logic in every movie. Um, they never explain why this is happening now, right? Mm-hmm. That that building was built, you know, sixty some years ago. Mm-hmm. At any point, this could have happened. Why is it happening? Now at the yeah. corner of Penthouse and Spook it. Central, they never they never ask the question. Mm-hmm. They never come up with a reason why right now is the time that this is happening. This is something that, uh, as Rob and I are getting feedback from various people, pro people reading the scripts and sending it back to us, mm-hmm. we do have some of these people who are asking. We can t- we can just tell they're twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, and they're very smart, but mm-hmm. they're like, why why is this happening now in your yeah. screenplay? What is what is the reason this cause? And we're like, okay. I appreciate no the cares. detail. You guys are going too deep, which is funny for me to say with the stuff I write. But for a 90-minute feature, you know, 100-minute feature. That's you, got some slapstick comedy yeah. elements to We've it. got fart, fart jokes are more prominent than finding out why is this happening at this particular moment in the world. Because it's not germane to the comedy. And yeah, earlier, I'm not sure we need to go into the life story of the guy of why he's sexist. Right. He just is because it works for us and it moves the plot forward. That's why he's Well, and earlier in this cast, Robbie, you said, you know, it, we didn't have 24-hour news cycles. We didn't have mm-hmm. thousands of internet opinions about every single thing we could look up. That informs because it takes longer to process all that info. So we got used to needing to know more or being able to know more. And we don't need that. And not only that, we don't want that. I don't want to learn. Like, I know as a viewer, I might think in the moment, like, why is he being such a jerk? But if I find out 20 minutes of why he's being a jerk there or even five minutes about why he's, and that never comes up again because it's completely yeah. irrelevant, I'm going to be mad that you wasted my five minutes. And we don't there know are, that about ourselves yet because we're not used to it. <laughs> there are plenty of people who come in and out of your life who are jerks or interact with you some way that you have no idea why they do that. Mm-hmm. And yet your life still goes on. Yep. For these 90 minutes, just let that guy be a sexist. Yeah. Please. Is that okay? Trust us that there's a reason. It's not just a character trait. I do have one thing before we move on, because we're almost running out of time. I do want to mention that Eddie Murphy was being considered yeah. for Winston's role. Okay. I think it was more than considered. I think he was attached and to then, this movie. And then wow. the conflict, the schedule conflict, he had a schedule conflict for an already committed role that was committed yeah, earlier. Was 
some little movie little about him movie. being a Detroit cop that uh, ends up out in California. I think it's it's Beverly Hills, like Beverly. right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure what happened with that, but boy, he messed out on an opportunity. I know. If you're I, Let me tell you. It's, and Ernie Hudson did an absolute perfect job. Yeah. Ernie is basically a straight man. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a, oh, very he's a great straight calm, man. reserved straight man. Eddie Murphy is not capable of playing a calm, reserved straight man. Mm-hmm. But with all the improv going on, like you think about the 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 human dynamo that is Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. in that uh, you know that that smaller role. I think it would have been a train wreck to tell you the truth. Or yeah. it would have been Ghostbusters starring Eddie Murphy, not Ghostbusters yeah, starring or, Bill Murray. Or he would have forced it to be rewritten, and he would have appeared in the first scene with everybody else, and it would have been a completely different movie. I mean, think exactly. about this. Take out Ernie Hudson and Rick Moranis. Put in Eddie Murphy and John Candy. Yeah. I don't think that's a better movie. No. I I, I don't think it is. So, I don't think so either, yeah. but I can't say it would be a bad movie. No, no not I, necessarily. Yeah. Would it be the enduring classic it is? Maybe, but, you know. Maybe. Like, yeah, impossible to tell, but I'm glad we have what we have. Yeah. I mean, but, but honestly, when you've got the Three Stooges, when you've got the Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. somebody has to be Zeppo. Right. I mean, somebody has to be the, 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 the lady who always worked with the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to be the straight man. Uh-huh. Ernie Hudson can do that. Eddie Murphy would not have done that at all. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. So we are almost out of time, you guys. Thank you so much for staying with us. Um, this uh, as a reminder, before we let Robbie go off uh, and do the rest of his Saturday stuff, um, which also involves other costumes, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I will say that also involves Zeppo Marx, uh, oddly <laughs> enough. So, who'd have, who'd have thought we'd have a Zeppo reference, right? Uh, I want to remind you guys. I uh, think you guys know this by now. Story Smack happens once a month. It's always on the second Saturday of every month. We'll be back on November thirteenth. November thirteenth, discussing the impo- the Mission Impossible franchise um, oh, wow. because MI seven is coming out Dang. on November nineteenth. Billion dollar franchise. Yeah, yeah. Are you excited? Yeah, I'm pumped. I I. I, I am I am super pumped. And so we're going to uh, say <laughs> that is it for episode 75 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. You can find Robbie here at Story Smack and soon to be making mo- major motion pictures. We're hoping. Uh, major we're motion picture release. <laughs> <laughs> Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am a real girl on Twitter and a dot real dot girl on Instagram. And Robbie, I know that you uh, don't necessarily need to, to pimp your social media, but is there anything you'd like to pimp? If, otherwise, we'll uh, say goodbye. I, I, I am on Twitter at, at AutomanThoughts. Mm-hmm. If you want to check it out, uh, it's mostly just, you know, my inane thoughts. And um, it sounds like I'm giving you a, a mission if you choose to accept it. <laughs> um, if not, this nice movie, Maven, will self-destruct nice in three... <laughs> Two, one. We'll see you soon, Robbie. Right, we we're love going you. To Maine, and then you guys can't see <laughs> it, but so I much, hang Robbie. up on Rob right now. Well, we'll follow up with him later. And of course, you can find us online at facebook.com slash storysmack. Sometimes I even update that page. Not all the time. We live stream Story Smack every second Saturday of the month at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, and youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. And in addition to Story Smack, we do a once weekly live stream called Sigler in Place. It's on Wednesday. It starts at 6 p.m. Pacific time right here where you're watching this now. And we release an unabridged episode of a serialized audiobook novel every week. And you get episodes for free every stinking Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe to get them links. And I don't want to forget, you guys, it. Scott runs a Friday afternoon. It's super rad. It's 30 minutes long. It's so fun. You should check it out live or watch it afterwards. It's um, a Twitch stream where he talks about pop culture monsters with uh, other writers and directors and all that sort of stuff. And you can watch it on twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler and Facebook and and all the places that we've mentioned. Yeah, same place. All the same places you mentioned. And it's called Monster of the Week. And if you've never checked it out, it's absolutely worth checking out. And for those of you watching live or if you catch this early enough, this This coming episode is going to involve author Mike Cole, author of uh, Aliens versus, excuse me, (laughs) Legion versus Phalanx, which was absolutely instrumental in my Aliens Phalanx novel. We will talk about that. His new book out is called The Bronze Lie, and we're going to be talking about, do you remember the name of the monster? I Uh, forgot already. I think it's Nosos, right? No, we're talking Nesos or Nosos, depending on how you pronounce it, which is the centaur that killed Hercules. Yes. Uh, And... um, 
We hope that you subscribe. If you go to scottsingler.com, you can subscribe. It's at the top of the left-hand page. You can also subscribe to this feed or go to uh, facebook.com slash scottsingler and subscribe there, and you'll get alerts so that you know whenever live things are coming or you can watch them once they're done. And uh, we do hope you subscribe so that you can hear Scott's books and more Story Snack goodness in the future. Let's switch over to main camera, which we, I don't like on main. We're never going to figure this out. Everybody likes to look at you more than my big ass bald head. I think so. it's you who control the camera, so that's you doing it. I like looking at you better than my big ass bald head, I'll tell you that, all day long. Uh, there we go. I think that is it. Ready to tell everybody to have a great uh, Yeah, until the next episode, you guys. We will talk to you all real soon. I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my two wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. The one thing I constantly hear successful people say, without fail, is that they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. That's time no one can get back. So I decided to create Business Dad, to engage in the conversation about how we're spending our time now, providing a forum for successful dads to share their joys and challenges of being a working parent. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. And while this podcast will talk about business and will definitely be featuring dads, I think everyone can learn something from these incredible conversations as we unpack the expectations we all have about careers, relationships, and ourselves. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.